everyone. Um, I'm live. I, I, I would do our normal hello, but Peter's not here. He's going to be here any minute. He's running late, but I just didn't want our stream to kind of, you know, die off and have to reset it on Facebook. So he's coming in a minute. He's running a little late. Um, so guys, tonight we're going to be doing another, uh, a follow-up to um, our Deconstructing Zionism series that, that I've been working on. And we're really going to be able to speak with um, our, our one of our guests who actually was on in our panels, but because of the time difference between here and Central Standard Time was not in the correct panel. And so tonight we're going to get to talk about um, his book, which is Wrestling in the Daylight. And I'm going to actually put these up. And then we're also going to be speaking tonight with Rosalind Pacheski. And she's with Jewish Voice for Peace in New York. And this is that book. And I'm going to put both these up there because they're really definitely good reads for you guys. And I'm just going to keep doing this and doing my best to kind of educate as many people, um, whether you were programmed like I was or you just never knew anything about Israel or anything. I, I just think it's really really important for us coming from the same set of facts. Uh, that's always been my experience, like as somebody who grew up as basically a Western civilization raised Ashkenazi Jew in South Florida. Um, we did not get accurate history. We did not learn the thing, like we didn't learn proper history about uh, the origins of the state of Israel. We were just basically taught unconditional loyalty and just sort of fell in line like good little Zionists. And so this is a very hard issue for me. And a lot of people who know me know that this is not coming from a place of um, like hate or animosity towards. In fact, I very much love Israel. I, I would very much like to go back um, with a very different perspective now and and spend time and do a, like a Palestinian solidarity tour or something. I would love to find some sort of delegation to go on. But um, yeah, I, I have a lot of love for it there. I think it's very special and I think it's very beautiful. And I think it really is sort of like this cradle of civilization. And I think for Jewish people, the important thing to realize is it's not just our cradle of civilization. It's sort of the cradle of civilization. So it's not something that was necessarily meant to be owned by um, modern civilization Jews in the form of a geopolitical state. Like that That really wasn't what that area was meant to, to be. And, and as such, we've made something that we claim is the only way for Jews to be safe. And we've basically turned it into a hellscape for other groups of people, specifically Palestinians. But quite honestly, from a lot of what I've been reading, guys, um, the Zionism issue is more than just Jews, uh, you know, seeking a national state. There's more to it than that. There is this white supremacy element that is very disturbing to me. Um, there's a lot of discrepancies between how um, the Ashkenazi, the white Jews, um, are treated versus, let's say, more indigenous Jews, because there actually were Arabic Palestinian Jews that lived in that area. There were Muslims, Jews, Christians. And those Jews, um, dark-skinned Jews, African Jews, are not treated the same as um, Western-centric Ashkenazi Jews. So it, it really is, there's a lot of nuance here. And we're going to get into that in a minute. I'm really hoping he said he's going to be here in a minute. <clears throat> Who knows with him? But guys, if you haven't, please 
hit the like button, subscribe to Generational Change. Um, we'll hit you up to be patrons later when Peter does his Um knows that I've been talking about the last I haven't Agnew as our guest really talked about the intersection between the black liberation movement and and yeah, we're having some internet issues. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I'm going to message my husband, but I think I hear Peter is coming in in these seconds. So, um, guys, if you hear it's out there, we're having um, connection problems. I keep kind of going out, and I don't know what to do about that. Okay. But, um, so anyway, that's what we're having going on. But yeah, you see how it keeps kind of fading out? Yeah, do we want to reset? Uh, I don't know how to, like at this point, because we're, you know, we're live, yes? Uh, yeah, I guess. See, this is what happens when I'm left to my own devices. I just sort of sit here and just do my own thing. And But he's, he's the one who scheduled it for that time. And if you don't go, then you have to reschedule the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to move over a little bit. No, well, no, this way. Connections. <laughs> Maybe it was because I wasn't here. Well, I'm just saying that it would always be nice if prior to showtime, there was a little bit of, you know, cushion as opposed to not. But anyway, I was doing like a little intro. We're still waiting on our second guest. I did make a nice little graphic of the, of the books. Can you? This? We'll go to the next slide. Go to the oh, next okay. slide and share it. Yeah. Uh, connectivity problems. We're having connectivity problems. Mm. So hopefully this clears up. But guys, these are the two books we're going to be talking about this evening with our guests. I just want to put this up there in the past. And it's really hard for me because they don't, when I hold them up, it just, it's never clear. And actually these are, these are books that I have actual physical books. It's harder when I do it like Kindle or audiobook, and I'm trying to share it with you guys. And I'm like, listen, you could hear, look, look at my tablet. Doug, how does the audio sound right now? So I haven't, um, I didn't adjust the audio last night or anything like that. I don't know what's going on, but I I, we're having connection it, problems is what it is. Because every time that little thing comes on, it means we're having connection problems. But right now it looks pretty good. Well, right now for the, for the moment, yes. Well, oh, that's moment, all I can do is live in the moment, man. I can only live in the moment. Well, you've been telling me that for a while. I'm trying to get you to understand that. Uh, it would be better if you would get here a few moments earlier. I, <sighs> okay. Or set the live for nine instead of 845. I did what I could. I'm just saying, you had the control of the situation. So I sort of did our hello, but I didn't go, hi, all, welcome. It's Wednesday night, generational change. I'm Jen. Oh, my name's Peter. <laughs> and if, if you haven't <laughs> smashed that like button yet, I hope you will. I do everything I can to make sure that this connection stays as sharp as it can. And we're going to hope for the best. Make sure next Friday you mark your calendars for 6 p.m. through at least 9 p.m. for our Festivus for the rest of us. We currently have a couple of panels brewing. On, I'm working on, working on, we might have to move something around, but you're having good responses. We need to move something around. 
Maybe. We'll talk about that in a second. All right. I mean, start time different or something? No, just move one person somewhere else. Oh. Okay. Depends. We might have to, we might have somebody Do else. we have like a rivalry or something? That no, we have somebody that wants to be as early as possible, if at all possible, because of the parent issue. We have yet another parent thing. So I thought throw him in with them and move, you know, the single West Coast guy to the next time frame or the other one. That was my thought process. It's a good, it's a good, thought it might process. have to happen. We'll talk about it. Oh, we're buffering again. I know. Um, is it? Well, I just it, texted him. There's nothing else I can do. I don't know how to fix it. Well, what I'm saying is, is that if we reset, is there any way to reset the, um, if we needed to reset, then we'll have to connection. close out of this and go back into this. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we could do that theoretically. Uh, Rabbi, I, I think uh, if we're gone for two minutes, but I, but right now it's fine. Well, like, yeah, and I don't know that doing that, I don't know that that'll change it. We could end up exactly where we are right now. Better is the enemy of good. Well, I suppose that that's fair. Don't yeah. start messing with stuff. I'm don't not start messing, messing with, with anything. I'm not messing with anything. Yeah. Don't start messing with us. Jason says it looks fine. So it's not our, I don't know. He said the connection's good. Well, I'll just blame myself because of course I, um, technically was a few minutes behind and, and I apologize. Yeah. I don't know why I set it up for 845, but I guess I was hoping. I and then I'm also hoping that you made it clear to the next guest that not to click on the Google link that you only sent a StreamYard link. Well, I guess we're going to find out right now because I'm, well, it's, it's just, it's nine o'clock. No, no, no. And that I'm yeah. just, I know that you have done that in the past. You sent somebody a Google appointment link and they that. Well, we don't want to confuse too many people. No. As you have told me, no. uh, the lovely lady who's coming on is not young. So that's neither here nor there, well, maybe but she a is from a tech tech technological standpoint. don't know i'm not making presumptions we've had people of all age and genders and creeds who have clicked on the google appointment thing because you've sent it to them in the stream here I, I really the age is no i i understand uh but yes there's definitely a connection issue for sure it's not just the stream yard there's just a general connection issue um as it stands so i'm, I'm actually thinking that potentially resetting he said uh, it's a little choppy here and there, but it's yeah. not going to do anything if you do that. Like that won't resetting, help. No resetting the, the modem? You don't think so? I don't because he's saying it's a little choppy in there. So then you would have to deal with the whole house. Like I just, I really don't think that that's going to do anything right now. Uh, good question. Um, well, you've some also changed it. So now I can no longer get into our, he said, so we're going to have to do it. All right. That's Rabbi, what's going to happen. Rabbi, right guys, hang tight. We're gonna we're gonna reboot because it, it's it's affecting everything. So give us uh, give us two minutes, but we will be right back. And I'm gonna set up a new stream. Grab some uh, popcorn. Yeah, grab some popcorn. Maybe, maybe but and, and in a couple of minutes, maybe um, our other guest will be on. Yes, that'll be great. All right, guys, hang tight. We'll be right back. We're back. We're back, but there's nobody here yet because well, we were live when we started our show. And then we had technical difficulties and we had to start over. And now I'm just hoping that our guests check the email and know that they have to come in through a different stream. Yeah. Uh-oh, so we're having a problem with that. Is that a no, problem with Google Chrome? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either, but she's saying something. Try this link. We had to reboot. Okay. So, so, okay. She's being pretty current with the email. So guys, um, 
Yeah. So we'll let it, we'll let a few people come on. So we will be doing a, a segment in deconstructing Zionism series. Uh, if both guests can figure out how to get back on the stream, which I'm hopeful, um, we will be talking about Oh, and now I don't have my slides because you had to redo the stream, so we don't have slides. Where but do you get, yeah, you can pull them, right? I could pull them, I guess, yeah. So um, why don't you talk about something you want to talk about while we're waiting for them we'll to come back? All right. I just on. wanted to come in here this evening and let everybody know we've got a big, beautiful, wonderful announcement we're making tomorrow. That is a totally fake poll that came out and said, Ron DeSanctimonious is ahead of me. He's totally not. It's the Wall Street Journal. They totally don't like me to begin with. So believe me, we're going to have a great announcement tomorrow. We are making America great again. Again. One day at a time. Believe me. So be patient. My MAGA people, nothing to fear. Ron DeSantis, DeSanctimonious, DeSatan himself oh my God. stands no chance. Not against us. We're building oh. a big, beautiful movement. It's just getting started. Believe me. We have nothing to worry about. Am I right? Sure, you're right. That's right, because I'm always right. Always and right. even if I'm wrong, I'm still right, believe thing. me. So weird in thing. time, everything will work itself out. Make sure you tune in tomorrow. It's going to be a great announcement, really incredible. And be prepared. Ugh. We're just getting started. Patience, people. Okay, Patience. so these guys, the books that we're going to be talking about tonight, if let's assume our guests get back on our stream, are these are the two books. And um, they're really from the perspective of uh, people that were Zionists, like me, who then realized that there's just something not so right about that and then had to dig a little deeper. And once you start peeling back the layers... It's like it's the whole thing comes unraveled, really. It's, it's quite disturbing. But so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Here's hoping. Yes, here is hoping. Uh, we will see what happens in the next few minutes. But I can yeah. no longer check our, our business email on my phone for some reason. So you must have at some point changed the password like you do sometimes. Yes. Yes. Mm. Don't do that. I'm telling you, I can't check it. There's a reason I can't check it. Because I can check my personal, but I can't check the business one. It only goes back to a date from last month. Why don't people just hang around for a couple of minutes? We said we would be right back. Well, Come it on, took team. a while, and this is what happens. This is what happens when you, you know, when you've okay, got tech cool. issues just, and we're not on our game. You know, just blame me. It's my. Fault. I wasn't blaming you. I'm saying when you're not when we're not on our game and we're not being like you know proactive professional. Well, we are professional. Well, somewhat. somewhat. We don't have quite the studio or tech space and we definitely don't have the tech understanding. No, we don't, but we're learning. It, we're still fighting the good fight. Yeah. I mean, so hopefully they, they figure out that they need to get into a different link. Well, we sent the follow-up link and hopefully they will check it. And Obviously, the deconstructing Zionism is a very important topic that you want to continue talking about. Uh, yeah, I'm going to keep sort of harping on this, guys, because it's one of those things that I feel an extra special obligation, actually, like a responsibility as a Jewish person that was a Zionist. I feel like it's almost a duty to, to better educate and better inform people that were like me. I do. Yeah. I, and I feel like it's important for Jewish people specifically to speak out on these things. So hopefully, I don't know what's going to happen now. Yeah, we're hoping. Uh, 
you know, I don't, I, I, I know that the rabbi was there. He was in the studio. Oh yeah, no, he was there, but he very well might still be sitting there and not checking the email. I don't know what no, happened. Well, that, but that live stream ended though. So there's no way. But he might just be sitting in, I don't know how it works. I don't well, we'll know, or, or, or trying to go back into that one, but then you would think he'd see the email that says to go into a new one. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know, Maybe. guys. So, well, But there's plenty of stuff that I know you wanted to talk about that you put on our little headline that you wanted to touch on. So why not just do that? Because Well, apparently pres uh, there was a, there was a poll by Wall of the Wall Street Journal, which again, uh, that's a legitimate poll. And they polled, uh, you know, GOP primary voters. And right now, uh, you know, DeSantis uh, leads Trump by 14 points, 52-38 in a hypothetical heads up matchup, which let's be honest, that's pretty much the most likely scenario regarding, you know, how this is going to go down. Uh and, you know, DeSantis isn't even in the race yet. Obviously, I mean, who else is in the race? Nobody else is in it right now. It's, the, it's like you don't even have a minute to breathe. You know, we can't just be on politics 24-7. You are. You know, well, I'm on it long enough. Matt, we are waiting on our guests to arrive. Uh, um, what about us? We're important too, you know. We are, but this might, oh, yay, yay. We were so, hi, thank you so much. Okay. The rabbi's back because um, we we knew that this could end end up being complicated. No, but I like how Matthew. A new link. I like how Matthew decides to come on here and be like, "Where's your guest?" As if to say, "Well, if your guest ain't here, I ain't staying." You on. know, there's a lot of shows that don't have guests where you would just sit there and listen to the two of us banter for any period of time. Fortunately, I don't like to do that without guests. Yeah, I know. Not talking so to me much. really sucks. No, I mean, it's just I've do. done that. I and, and and plus, I like to talk to people that I feel like, you know, they can bring something new to my party. Ah, one can only hope. But I am doing the best I can. No matter what I do, it tells me my browser doesn't support Oh, anymore. that's so, so sorry. Don't know what to oh, do. Oh, that's so um, weird. We have, I, I didn't, but we, I use, do I not use well, Chrome? Well, no, we do use Chrome. Um, She's I'm having think, trouble getting in. I would tell her, uh, you know what? Uh, I'd tell her to try it. Uh, you try know, it on her phone. On phone. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the alternative. Yeah, tell her to try it on her phone. Try your cell phone. That should definitely work. But, yeah. If we have to do a cell phone conversation. We did, wait, didn't Scott Lively, when he came on, he was a cell phone as well? We've had people correctly. have to be on their cell yeah. phone before. Now, the cell phone Remember technology the cell phone. is so I've had good. cell phone users in Mexico before. Matt, I'm breaking, I'm breaking your chops, brother. I know you're just, I know you're kidding all right, so, so so let's 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 start. Let's continue our conversation about deconstructing of Zionism. Yes. We will discuss Trump and DeSantis after the fact. Yeah. But in the meantime, well, he yeah. is a. He, how would you like to describe the gentleman? Well, I mean, other than he's a rabbi of uh, Tzedakah Synagogue, it's Tzedakah Synagogue in Chicago. Chicago. I know in Chicago. I know in Chicago, and just somebody who has you know seen the light. So we're going to talk about this. Brant Rosen, Rabbi. It's a Brant rabbi. Rosen. Welcome back to Generational Change. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Finally. Sorry for the difficulties. Sometimes it's just like we're not great at it. And then my husband has to like come in and figure it out. And it's, No, we figured it out right away. It was definitely a connection issue connection and that problems. needed to be reset. But you know what? It happens from time to time. You know, we're not uh, we're not working with a super professional studio as of right now, but you know, we're doing the best we can. So uh, when does Hanukkah officially begin? I don't even know. That's how, I'm a yeah, very, bad, very Jew. bad Jew. When does Hanukkah start? Sunday night is the first candle. Okay. Okay. Well, a uh, happy early Hanukkah. So it's not like it's the same. You know what I mean? It changes every year. 
Okay, we're on a whole different calendar. You, you it's a whole different calendar. I Whereas can't be- Christmas, you know it. You know what day it's going to be every year. So is Festivus, <laughs> but, but then again, Festivus is on the 23rd. Festivus well. is the 23rd. You know what? In all honesty, the only reason I really, as an adult, ever kept track of Jewish holidays was when my kids went to JCC preschool or went someplace where the, all the arts and crafts would be whatever the holiday of the season is. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Like somebody's coming home with like a little, uh, like a little mini sukkah, you know, like I know what we're doing. Yeah. Right, little a little wooden Hanukkah menorah that completely exactly and use it, yeah. <laughs> so where? Uh, yeah, no, and and I mean, I the I was going to start. I don't know if you're familiar. Are you familiar with Rosalind with this book? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay, so um, I was on a call recently. It was a huge call for Jewish Voice for Peace, and mm -hmm. it was their members meeting. And I was very inspired because there was like over three hundred people were on this. Zoom call. And so many of them were older people. And I was so like pleasantly surprised that there were so many older people, like even my parents' age, that were on this call. So that was somewhat promising. But I reached out to her on that call because I had heard of her and I had read this book. And so I wanted to talk with her too. But the, the thing I guess that I would start with, and this is, let's see, I went through and folded again today. Because now, see, here's the thing is now it's been a while. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, wh where we are now in terms of what the status is, because I know that we would like to or a lot of people would like to say Trump made things so much worse, which I know he did. And moving the embassy was not a good move and all of those things. But they have their own internal geopolitical issues right now going on over there that are not, let's say, progressive minded. Right. So wh where is this right now, even with the Biden administration? Like where where are we right now in the state of Israel? Well, it's the most extreme government. It still not hasn't still hasn't been put together, actually. But when it is, it will be the most extreme right wing government that Israel has ever had. Um, I don't think it's going to affect the United States relationship with Israel. Um, I I don't. I think that's a fairly unshakable relationship that's rooted in common interests. It's rooted in a military uh, a military partnership uh, in the region. So there's too many factors that mitigate against uh, the United States, at least at this point, um, breaking off the relationship or having even this new government impact that relationship. I think really the most impacted group of people are the Palestinians. And all of the Palestinians that I speak to, both in Palestine and here, say that things have never been worse. Um, there have been well over 200 Palestinians killed by the military, about 60 children, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hasn't been this high in a very, very long time. And I think we're going to see, uh, we're gonna see really dark times uh, in the West Bank in particular, but Gaza, Gaza has always been um, a hellhole for Palestinians. Yeah. And, and it looks to me, and one of the things that, um, that you spoke about in your book, and we didn't really get a chance to talk about it when you were here last time, was how the more, let's say, progressive-minded people um, in Israel are tending to be like conscientious objectors and that you see a military that's gotten progressively much more um, 
zealot like and and less, you know, what we would say is a good secular type of military situation. And it's gotten more zealot like. And what we're also seeing, in addition to the military violence, is the settler violence right. that is. And it's almost like it's being sanctioned because this is sort of the policy of how it is. It's almost like it's sanctioned. But talk a little bit about how the military has changed there in terms of because I remember the people that I knew that served, they weren't like that. You know, back when I when I was there, it just it wasn't it wasn't like that. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to the Israeli military, there is a bit of a myth that's attached to it. I mean, this we shouldn't forget that this is the military that ethnically ethnically cleansed historic Palestine in order to make way for a Jewish state um, and has been occupying um, you know, the West Bank and Gaza for a very, very long time. So. You know, I, I think there is this this myth that this is somehow, you know, you often hear it referred to as the world's most moral army and that they they show restraint. And, you know, um, I think that is a, an image that they've tried very, very hard to cultivate uh, throughout the years. Um, when in, in truth, Israel has been one of the most brutal militaries uh, in the world because uh, it has to be. You know, it's it's occupying over millions of people who don't want to be occupied. Uh, one of the changes I think we are seeing, and I think it's parallel to the changes that are going on in Israel proper, is that the role of the religious uh, factions in uh, in Israel is becoming much more prominent in the military. And I think uh, the the army used to be much, much more secular. I think yeah. Israel used to be more secular. I mean, it's still a majority secular state, but the the percentage of uh, Jews who define themselves as religious, um, whether it's, you know, zealots, as you know, to use the word that you used before, yeah. um, um, far right wing, um, or even just Jews that will believe that this land, God gave this land to the Jews and that's all there is to it. The numbers of these kinds of people have increased. And I think it's reflected in the military as well. And that doesn't bode well. No, it doesn't. And and that that sort of brings me to, to something else. This is sort of like a, a bigger issue when we talk about secular versus non-secular. But how can you really even have a secular state when it's a religious ethno state? Like how you it's um, that's like what I call my Jews for Jesus thing. Like it's not it doesn't really work together. And that brings me to where you're talking about, like we have to make a choice if you want to support the idea of a Jewish state, you need to decide that you want that acknowledging that it cannot also be a democracy, right? right. Like, like those, those two things cannot coexist. And, and that's really what I think people won't, don't want to reconcile. Like they want to support, they want to have a Jewish state. They want to have their cake and eat it too. Yeah. The, the, the Zionism itself is an inherently illiberal project. Right. It's a, as you put it, it's an ethno state. It's a state that's predicated on the identity of one particular group of people. Um, it is uh, a people that have been religiously uh, a religious peoplehood uh, throughout the centuries. Uh, and, you know, it is is an ethno state that needs to be founded on the majority of one group of people over the other. That's how you maintain, quote unquote, a Jewish state is by maintaining a Jewish majority, yeah. which is runs right in the face of democracy, because in order to maintain that majority, you need to deal with the Palestinians, whether it's ethnic, ethnically cleansing them from their homes, whether it's expelling them, whether it's putting them under occupation, military occupation and not making them citizens. 
so that, you know, like you say, it's, you know, it's the, I think we've been looking the other way for so long, many, many of us in the Jewish community, um, because we have this image of, of Israel again as the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, but when you, when you really parse what this project is, it is, it is inherently illiberal at its core. Yeah, this is actually something, and I'm, I'm sad that Rosalind's not here because in this book, and this was something I want to talk about, where she says um, homogenizing Jews as a single national or racial identity inextricably bound to the state of Israel is itself a form of anti-Semitism. And right. I think that that, and I think that's really interesting. And it really is. It really does say we are, we can, we're creating our own otherhood, really. Like mm -hmm. we didn't like it when it was done to us, but yet it's okay as long as we're in the superior, as long as we're on the winning team. <laughs> you know, from its, from its origins, uh, Zionism had to make common cause with anti-Semites anti to a certain extent in, in order to create the Jewish state. You know, Lord Balfour, for instance, the Balfour Declaration in uh, 1917, which was issued by the Britain's foreign secretary that was promising a, a Jewish home for, uh, for the Zionist movement. Lord Balfour was an was a infamous anti-Semite. Uh, he passed legislation, he supported legis legislation that kept Jews out of his country who were fleeing from pogroms uh, in the late 19th, 19th century. Um, Zionists have had to make common cause with people who have no love for the Jews uh, because bringing those Jews out of their countries to this other place is in their interest. And then, of course, Christian Zionists are, are yeah. thoroughly anti-Semitic, but Zionists are willing to make common cause with them because, again, it suits their it suits their political purpose. Right. And that's what this has always been. It's always been an, like a political agenda. And I don't think that that people really understand that because they think, oh, that Zionism is somehow biblically based, which by the way, as somebody who is really um, not a believer and very secular, the whole concept that someone's religion dictates to them that they're entitled to something um, is insane to me. Like now that I think about it, like that's crazy because the majority of the world does not believe in your religion. So you're just sort of saying, well, my religion says I'm entitled to it. So therefore I am. Um, which is just like, doesn't even seem rational to me now when I think about it. Religion as a whole is not rational. Well, it's not supposed to be. There's yeah. a reason they call it uh, blind faith. Right. But, but no, but there's, there are, there is a, there is a meeting place. There is a common ground because you have people such as yourself that obviously recognize this and see religion in a very different light. Well, I believe in things like separation of church and state. <laughs> I don't think religion has, I don't think historically religion has mixed well uh, with politics. And when, when religion is attached, particularly to empire, we, we see historically that really, really horrible things will happen. And, you know, for most of Jewish history, uh, the Jewish people have resisted uh, fusing uh, the Jewish, Jewish tradition with empire. Yeah. Uh, and that all changed with Zionism. You know, Zionism is a modern movement. It's not a product of the Torah. It's not rooted in the Bible. Um, it, it doesn't say anywhere that God gives the Jewish people the right to create a modern Jewish ethnostate and historic right. time. Uh, it is a product of modernity. Uh, and so when people say that Zionism and Judaism are inextricably linked, and therefore, if you're anti-Zionist, you're anti-Semitic, 
it's really, really important to lift up the fact that Zionism is a very, very recent uh, movement on the Jewish scene. Uh, it's a Jewish movement. I don't deny that. But to conflate it completely with Judaism, which was a, a Jewish civilization that resisted for thousands of years, creating a sovereign Jewish state in the land and, and uh, held that only when the Messiah comes can that, something like that happen. Um, to say somehow that these two things are inextricably linked is just absolutely disingenuous and really factually wrong. It's dangerous too. And what I actually see is it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy when we talk about like this rise in anti-Semitism, because like we know that Judaism and Zionism aren't the same thing, but the more that they're sort of linked together and propagandized is one thing that I would have to imagine as a regular person with access to just regular media, which let's be real, is not very good. Um, I would imagine that I might have some dislike towards Jews if I affiliated them with the state of Israel and saw what they were doing to the Palestinians. Like that would definitely leave a very bad taste in my mouth. Right. I mean, the first thing we have to say is that anti-Semitism is wrong and horrid under any circumstance. Yeah. Uh, that's absolutely, I mean, I, I'm not trying to excuse or rationalize attacks on Jews, even when it happens uh, by people who think they're they're trying to defend Palestinians or or um, are somehow associating all Jews throughout the world with uh, with one particular state, but having said that, you know the the irony is that Zionism was a movement that was created ostensibly to safeguard the security of the Jewish people, and it has made Jews more unsafe both in Israel and around the world. Uh, that doesn't, again, doesn't excuse anti-Semitism against them, but it's, it's, a, it, it's a tragic irony that Zionism has not solved the, you know, the quote-unquote Jewish question, as they called it back then. Um, it's, only, it's only exacerbated it. In, yeah. in, and, and I'll say that the people who are suffering the most from, from Zionism, Zionism's biggest victims, of course, are the Palestinians. Uh, yeah. We're speaking with Rabbi Brent Rosen, author of Wrestling in the Daylight. You know, for me, uh, just as a trying to be as a neutral observer as I can possibly be, uh, you know, when I see, you know, the biggest issues regarding Zionism, of course, is that it's um, financially opportunistic for a number of people. Uh, people use religion as a weapon, like they use a lot of things. And one of the things that Zionists constantly do is say that you cannot separate Judaism from Zionism. And when you do that, you're perpetuating the old myth of the Jews are the chosen people. Therefore, everyone else is essentially irrelevant to the needs of what uh, you know, the Jews want to have. And so people will pay in many ways a political, economic and even an actual uh, a, a price regarding their own lives, uh, that to me, I think, only adds fuel to the already spreading wildfire that is anti-Semitism. And this is why I am vehemently uh, for the separation of church and state. But I find all too often that maybe some of the biggest reasons why this hatred has been perpetrated on society in such a big way, and let's not discount just how terrible it is that Bibi Netanyahu is the prime minister of Israel again, uh, there really is something to be said for just how devastating these circumstances end up being 
as a result of a handful of very opportunistic people seeking money and power. Yeah, and it's always been this way. I mean, this is, this is, these are the fruits of nationalism. You know, when people, uh, when groups of people stake their claim in a certain piece of land and draw their own borders and defend those borders with their own armies, um, we've seen historically what has happened and we see it going on today. You know, um, that's why in our core values in our congregation, we, one of the, the values is, is that we affirm is a Judaism beyond nationalism, that we believe in a, a world without borders. And, and we believe that actually Judaism, one of the beautiful things about Judaism is that it was born in the diaspora. It was, it's, a, it's a global peoplehood. Uh, it affirms that God can be found anywhere in the world that we you know, hang our hat. Uh, and it really looks at the world as our home uh, and that borders are artificially drawn uh, uh, phenomena that come and go throughout history. Uh, so, you know, lifting up the concept of diaspora and, and uh, a world without borders is something that's, I, I think, returning in many ways to some of the things that, may, that has made Judaism so beautiful in the first place. So speaking of borders, something that I saw recently, I'm sure you saw too, is that J Street um, recently put out that they're no longer saying that they believe in the possibility of a two-state solution. And, you know, while many of us already realize that that can't really happen, that that's not really a plausibility thing, um, this to me seemed like a big move in terms of Jewish organizations in this country, even going further to the left, because they were considered to be liberal Zionists. And this idea of what a liberal Zionist is, is what I think of as like, and I don't know if you would agree like this, during the transition that it takes to get from being a Zionist to being where I am now, right? There's this middle ground, this where it's the two-state solution place, right? Like the Jews are entitled to having a state, but so are the Palestinians, right? Like it's that that's still this plausible thing. And now I realize that that's not that's not a plausible thing. So did you like, what do you think about the fact that J street now just came out and was, and finally affirmed, yeah, we've, we've killed any possibility of a two state solution. Well, I think it's waking up to something that should have been obvious, you know, 10 plus years ago, if not 20 years ago. Um, I, what I would ask is if they are giving up on the two-state solution, then what are they advocating for? Or does that mean they're advocating for a democratic state of all its citizens, which is not a very radical concept, but it is for many Zionists. So the next question really is, in what, what, is what is it that you stand for? And, and how are you going to create the political will? Because that's what J Street is. It's a political organization to make that happen. And I haven't seen that spelled out. I don't think they, it's clear to them either. Right. You know, when we talk about the two-state solution, though, I'm old enough to remember, you know, that there was a brief window of time where the two-state solution really looked like a viable alter solution to the issue. This was pre-Oslo. Um, and Oslo just dashed those hopes completely. I mean, Israel went into those negotiations um, completely disingenuously and, and used it to, to double down on the occupation and make a two-state solution absolutely impossible. Um, but, you know, there was a time when, when the two-state solution, both by the representatives of the Palestinians and, and Israel and the United States as a broker, was something that was in the realm of possibility. Uh, it, Maybe not the perfect solution. There are no perfect political solutions. I also think 
the notion of two states is 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 rooted in a concept of, of segregation, um, segregation based on identity, which again is somewhat illiberal. Uh, but you know, historically, there have been times where, whether we're talking about uh, India and Pakistan, or you know, uh, uh, in Belgium and Ireland, that that there are borders drawn and and treaties signed because these two groups of people need to stay separate. Um, those things have happened, but Israel has just kiboshed completely any possibility of that happening. And it, it's been obvious for a very, very long time. So uh, it's interesting to hear that J Street is uh, is coming around, uh, at least to, you know, admitting the obvious, but I, I'd be very curious to know what it is that they do, they are advocating for. What is the solution, right? Like, I believe in a single democratic place in any location, right? Like that whatever the, the bulk of the citizenry or bulk of residents of any location come together and form a civilization, it's a majority rule situation, however you set that up, right? Like, but from where we are right now, given what it looks like in the West Bank, given the situation in Gaza, let's say you could wave a magic wand and have, you know, it be one democratic state that's not something that can just happen overnight, right? Like, how would you even, like, how would we even go about undoing, let's say, Gaza, you know, and dealing with that? Well, if I had a magic wand, it would be no problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but let's just say you could even get the political will. Let's just say you could get everybody in a power position to say, you know what, we have to stop oppressing these people and having an apartheid regime. We need to create a democratic state. How do we do that? You know, I am hesitant to spell out what I think needs to be done because I'm not a stakeholder. I don't live there. I'm not an Israeli or a Palestinian. I think they need to to work out the specifics of it. I do know that from a Palestinian point of view, the right of return of refugees is, is absolutely sacrosanct. Uh, the Palestinians, like all other peoples, are very diverse and in their politics and the religious secular divide. And there, there are also Christian and Muslim Palestinians, uh, but they're fairly united on the, um, the concept of the right of return. So I think that will have to be absolutely uh, part of the, the deal with reparations uh, and some kind of uh, restorative process. You know, we saw that, and again, it happens. It's that's not pie in the sky. Uh, it happened in South Africa. It's happened uh, in in countries around the world. Uh, reparations and repatriation is a thing. <laughs> so um, I I do believe that that will have to be part of whatever specifics are ironed out, and uh, there there needs to be full. Uh, equal rights, civil rights, human rights for everybody who lives between the river and the sea, whatever, whatever that, that looks like, whether it's a republic or whether it's, you know, we have, it's a binational state or, you know, the, you, you hear all kinds of different interesting ideas being bandied about. But the first thing that needs to happen is a recognition that the status quo can't continue. Uh, and, and, and true democracy is, is the ultimate goal here. And you know, when you say things like from the river to the sea, that has been used as like where people say, if anybody says that Palestinians should be free from the river to the sea, they're anti-Semitic, they're wanting to abolish the Jewish state. And this is a common one. Like this is one that Ilhan Omar, I think, got got um, hit with at one point when she had said some comment, or was it, 
It might have been Rashida Tlaib. Either way. Um, yeah, either way. But either way. Set made that comment and um, they just they never heard the end of it. And it's it's amazing to me how we have been able to change the narrative from one person's freedom now equates to them wanting to annihilate another group of people. Like somehow that's the logical step. And I just, I, I don't understand like how so many people accept that yeah. and just say, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds anti-Semitic to me. You know, that attitude, you know, the attitude that if you give Palestinians democracy, they're just going to throw Jews into the sea. That is the exact same racist attitude that existed in this country after the civil war, uh, after the abolition of slavery, uh, Southern white slave owners were saying that we're going to be murdered in our beds. Uh, it's, it's what happened when they talked about desegregating the South. It's what happened in South Africa. It was the biggest argument of, of, uh, against dismantling apartheid was that there's going to be a bloodbath against white people, which never happened. Right. Uh, this is a trope. This is a, a racist meme that basically treats a group of people as bloodthirsty beasts uh, simply because they just want to live free on their own land. Uh, and... You know, I think we need to push back against that strongly and call these tropes out for what they are. If you, you know, that overwhelmingly Palestinians will tell you what they want is they just want, they want to be their own home. They want to live with, with the same rights as everybody else. Uh, they want individual rights and they want their national rights um, respected as well. Uh, between the river and the sea, which means the West Bank, Israel proper, Gaza, no, no exceptions. Um, the idea that somehow this means the annihilation of Jews is just fear-mongering. Um, you know, when we talk about doing away with a Jewish state, if the only kind of Jewish state we can imagine is a Jewish state that, that is rooted and based on the dispossession of Palestinians, frankly, I think that kind of Jewish state should be dismantled. Uh, I'd like to, uh, to, envision creative ways about creating a Jewish state that's not based on the oppression of another people. Uh, again, the specifics of that will need to be worked out by the people who, who will be impacted by these decisions. But um, as a Jew, I'm implicated in the actions of this state. Uh, they were, and um, I, I feel, you know, all Jews everywhere are facing what I believe is the most important moral issue facing our community today. It's Israel-Palestine. Well, yeah. it's perfect timing because we are I'm going very to excited. bring in our second guest. Technology can always be tricky. We've had problems uh, all night uh, and I feel <laughs> it's just, it's been like, it's been one of those days. She is the author. Well, of this is a, this is a collection of stories, history and poetry and art. And she is one of the editors and people that put it together. And she did write several portions in it, which are right. You know, you guys know, I take notes. Copious I have like, notes. I take copious notes. Yeah, I've got some problems. A That's land, the one problem with Audible. Author of A Land with People, Rosalind Pacheski, welcome to Generational Change. Well, thank you. It's really a relief to be here finally. Oh my God, I thought I was a total technology idiot. This was really challenging, but maybe I'm not the only one. No, we've had people have issues before, and, and I wish that I was tech savvy enough to just sort of walk people through it, but I'm not. So it's like it's like the blind leading the blind. Like I, well, I am of really very little help. And so we started, and I don't know if you guys have met, you know each other? Well, I know, I remember you, Rabbi Rosen. Do you call, do people call you Rabbi Rosen or Rabbi Brandt? 
Both of those or Brandt yeah. are totally fine as well. Okay. But I remember you from a JVP, you know, general meeting somewhere, one of the places, Chicago or Baltimore or someplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it was really wonderful to see you there. I feel like I know you even. Yeah. Likewise, Rosalind. Yeah. It's great. Well, you both are two people in my sort of new found, not feeling kind of like awkward and ashamed and being Jewish around people. Like this is like, there's now people that I actually feel good about this again. That's how I felt on that Jewish voice for peace call. Like I felt like, Oh, it's okay. Like it's, it, it was like the safest space ever. Cause, and I live in South Florida, which outside of Brooklyn, when I was growing up was what we called the second largest Jewish ghetto in the country. I mean, I thought everybody was Jewish and where I lived, everybody was Jewish. I thought everybody was Jewish until I went to college. Um, you know, so that was very typical for me. But one of the things I really wanted to ask you, Rosalind, to talk about a little bit was obviously we say, okay, at one point we were Zionists. We were taught what we were taught. We were programmed what we were programmed. And I'm very curious for you where your turning point was. Well, it's in my story in the book, but it was, I grew up the opposite of you in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm. So try growing up in Oklahoma. You think you're like the only Jew in the world. Um, it's very strange. And I always felt, you know, like an alien dropped down there. Um, I grew up in a very, I would say quite Zionist, but reformed Jewish family, very liberal, but very Zionist, passionate. My grandmother, my father, my uncle, uh, was someone named Maurice Friedman. He was a philosopher who wrote the biography of Buber. So we had these strains of criticism in our family. But when I was 16, I, you know, the, the recruiters, it was before birthright, but it right. was, it was the prototype of birthright. They would come to all over to synagogues, you know, all over the country and they would proselytize. I mean, they came and they told us about the, about Israel and how wonderful it was. And I said, I want to go there. I was 16. I begged my parents. And I think they didn't really pay for both birthright. They didn't pay for you then. I think my parents probably paid. And I went to Israel. I was 16 years old. I was very idealistic. I thought Israel would be a wonderful place. I might want to move there. And I was also, it you know, I was 16, but it was 1959. It was the earliest time of the civil rights movement. And I was in that environment and I was aware of civil rights and I was aware of the struggle against racism, although we called it prejudice. And I went to Israel, very naive, and I witnessed racism. And it was racism of Jews against other Jews. They just happened to be dark-skinned. They happened to be African. And I was appalled and I couldn't believe it. And I said, what's going on? And when I came back to Tulsa, I gave a bunch of talks, you know, in the school and in the synagogue. And one of the talks I gave was to the rabbi and um, some elderly people. And I was just telling them what I saw. And the rabbi, apparently this woman was quite upset with what I had said. And he wrote her a letter, said, don't worry about it. Don't pay attention. She's just a young girl. I was just there. It's not true anything, she says. And that was the turning point. And I realized I was being dismissed, not only as, you know, a a heretic in my community, but as a know-nothing girl. 
And so I consider that the beginning of my feminism as well as my anti-Zionism. And then when I went to college, my mentor in college was Ibrahima Bulagud, who was a great Palestinian intellectual. And it just went from there. I had Palestinian students when I was teaching at Hunter College. They were great, Rabab al-Dukhadi and, and Suhaer Hamad and um, uh, uh, um, Rihan Barghouti. And, you know, it just, and then, you know, I got more and more involved. And eventually it was 2014 was the real, 2013 I got involved in JVP. Um, in a campaign against TIAA, CREF, and there, and for BDS, and then got very involved in JVP, and it's been amazing to be part of Jewish Voice for Peace. Yeah, it's special. So let's talk about BDS a little bit because that's something that is very, very frustrating. Um, we get we as Jewish people that that support that as a movement. You get talking points like, "But what about this place?" or "What the what aboutism is off the charts?" You know, like yeah. you you say that. Uh, why aren't you boycotting this country or that country? And so, Rabbi, if you would, and this is something you spoke about in your book, um, the, the origins of BDS. It's not as such like a bunch of like white people all got together and said, we're going to fight and we're going to boycott Israel, right? Like this, talk about the origins of this, because like, this is why it doesn't make sense to me when they say, well, you support other countries. Well, I would if they had one. Right. BDS is about solidarity. So the origins of the BDS call Go back to 2006, I believe, was the origin. 2005, I think. 2005. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a, con a consortium of, of Palestinian civil society organizations and groups. Uh, and they put together a call to the world asking for solidarity. And there were three basic goals to this call. One was equal rights for uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. The second was the end to the occupation of uh, of the West Bank in Gaza. And the third was rec recognizing the right of return of Palestinian refugees. It, it addressed basically the three main populations of Palestinians, uh, citizens of Israel uh, under occupation and refugees. And uh, they used a time-honored form of nonviolent resistance as part of their call, which is boycott, divestment, and sanctions. It was based on a similar call that was made by civil society in South Africa against apartheid. And really the main question for us is if we agree with the call, if we agree with these three basic goals, if we want to stand in solidarity with Palestinians um, using these time-honored tactics of, of nonviolent resistance, the real question is not, well, what about this group? What about this group? The, the question is, are we going to answer their call or not? That's the only that's the only real question that's that's been put before us here. And right to it's a very, very typical like white person <laughs> approach to say, well, we're going to determine the the terms of their liberation. You know, well, I'll I'll honor this part of it, but not that part of it. And it's just another form of erasure. It's another way of, of not, not respecting the agency and autonomy of the Palestinian people. They're calling for solidarity. They've put out a cry for their liberation and asking us to stand with them. And, you know, uh, there's nothing illegal about boycott. Uh, this country is 
rooted in boycott. You know, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott is venerated in this country. Uh, the boycott of by the United Farm Workers, Farm workers. in California. So, you know, to, to call it somehow anti-Semitic or a form of violence against the Palestinian people is just nonsense. Well, I would add to that, um, there is an element of not in our name. There is an element of special call to Jews in the diaspora and Jews in the United States, because this is being done in our name. We support many forms of just social justice and liberation. And they don't cancel each other out. They're all connected. It's called what my friend Rabbi Abdelkhadi calls the indivisibility of justice. So you saw it in the World Cup. Palestine was yes. everywhere, and that kind of that kind of solidarity is the only thing that's going to make real change. So if you put BDS in that context of global solidarity of all peoples seeking justice, then it makes complete sense. BDS is the tool. It's a it's a tactic. Absolutely. Yeah, what I what I, oh, I'm sorry. It also explains why the backlash is so fierce, uh, because they know that this is a tactic that historically has has yielded results. It works. It works. Well, one of the things that's incredibly frustrating is the anti-BDS legislation that we see. I mean, you've got, I think it's 26 states right now that have laws. And I believe the case in Texas, the the woman sued the, I think it was the the county school, the school system, and she won. Um, But the fact that this is what people are being driven to, and it's very frustrating because this is a nonviolent protest. So you don't want to allow people nonviolent protests, but yet you're constantly complaining about how it's too scary to give them freedom because they'll be violent. And I just find that like, so in other words, you, everyone should just shut up and take it. Yeah. Yeah. Very hypocritical. And actually, you know, I mean, I know that Rabbi Brandt has been to Palestine probably many more times than I have. I've been twice. But all you have to do is walk in the streets. All you have to do is visit people in the Hebron Hills or in Silwan or in many places or walk through the streets of Jerusalem with a Palestinian friend as troops of IDF come along and see the kind of abuse, the kind of surveillance, the cameras everywhere, and not without even witnessing the violence, which is daily, the in you know, invasion of homes with dogs and lasers. You know, the, the stories were just multiple. And you hear, and, 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 and we get tons of witness accounts. So then you ask yourself, why are these people not more violent? Yeah. Why? I mean, how can they even stand it? And, and then you realize the whole strategy here is to make the lives of Palestinians so unbearable that they will leave. I just finished writing a letter to the New York Times. There was a le- op-ed in today's New York Times by Diana Butu. She's a Palestinian lawyer. Um, she, We might even have different politics. She's probably more, I don't know, more nonviolent than I am. Um, but... <laughs> Um, it was a fabulous letter, and we were, we were, there was an appeal to us to everybody write to the New York Times 
to support her letter because there will be pressure from the Israelis to denounce it. Um, and just, you know, participating in that and realizing it's, she, she quotes one person who said to her, one Palestinian friend of hers, she's in Haifa, who said, I don't think we're gonna be here very long. And I just wept. You know, I mean, Palestinians are the indigenous people of the land. Jews went there as settlers. This was a plan. And it was very, very destructive from the very start. It's called yeah, the Nakba. Well, yeah, well, and that's the key thing when I now talk to people about this issue. If you don't know what that means or you don't know what that is, then we are coming at this from two completely different sets of facts. So it's really difficult then to have conversations with people with a whole different sense of history. Um, and it's just, it's very frustrating. So that's part of why I want to do For this sure. as often as I can, because, yeah. you know, like I say to people, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your facts. Like it, it, what happened is what happened, but no one I know growing up knew anything about any of that. We didn't know any of that. Everything was just fine. It was all these uncivilized primitive people that were uh, unable to exist without our white selves coming in and saving them. And something I also learned from, from your book, Rosalind, was the, the mistreatment of the Palestinian Jews. Like that's the thing I don't think people understand. Like there, there are indigenous Jews, Muslims, and Christians that were from that area. And they were not, those Jews were not treated as the Euro Jews. Because they weren't. Right. But, you know, one of our co my co-editors, there are three of us who are edited this book, um, A Land with a People, is Esther Farmer. Esther's father and grandmother were Palestinian Jews. They were originally from Hebron. Her grandmother used to tell her, we lived here together, all of us. Muslims, Christians, Jews, we all, they were my neighbors. It was the British who started this animosity, starting, you know, with the Balfour Declaration. And, um, you know, she, Esther herself, you know, just grew up in this, what to me is a remarkable family of left-wing Jews who were Palestinians and had to leave. And we have other members in JVP, many, Ms. Rahim, you know, yeah. come and have many stories. We some of those stories are in our book. Um, so They're treated as lesser. They're treated as lesser. Like indigenous peoples in general are treated as lesser. The religion is the secondary aspect to this. They're just they were black and indigenous, dark and indigenous. That's why or from know, the east. <laughs> you know. Uh, Jen, when you talk about, you know, you weren't taught any of this. I mean, I'll say I wasn't taught all that much about the extermination of indigenous peoples in this country. No. And, right. you know, and it's uh, these are absolutely connected. I mean, Rosalind talked about settlers. This is a settler colonial enterprise. And, you know, if you're going to be uh, a liberal and, you know, and stand with native peoples in this country and around the world, then you have to, you have to stand with Palestinians. Otherwise you're guilty of hypocrisy and vice versa, by the way. Um, those who stand with Palestinians need to make those connections as well. 
Uh, it is a global a global movement, of a liberation movement, as Rosalind was saying. So we need to be able to connect those dots and say, this is settler colonialism. This is a pattern of behavior, of, of locating a, a place for a group of people to move into and claim that space in the name of that group of people. Uh, that, you know, they all maybe differ in the details, but that's the basic approach of settler colonialism. And we need to, need to identify it, you know, very, very clearly. Yeah. We're speaking with Rabbi Brant Rosen and Rosalind Pachetsky. Uh, I think this would be a good opportunity to talk, as uh, we had discussed uh, pretty briefly with uh, the rabbi before, Rosalind. Um, you know, for those uh, who may or may not know, you may not know, Rosalind, that uh, Jen ran for Congress in 2020 against one of the most notorious Zionists in all of politics, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, right. she, is, she is somebody who... Um, That's my congresswoman. So when it comes to... <laughs> Yeah. When it comes to the specific issues pertaining to, you know, most people on the national level uh, know Debbie for her notorious behavior as the DNC chair during the 2016 No, election. I assure you, they know her as APAC's darling. But she is definitely somebody who has never met a war she didn't like and has never met an anti-BDS legislation piece that yeah. she didn't like. For what sure. Is the, what is the motivating factor for people like Debbie? Because as we alluded to earlier, you know, obviously the detriment of seeing Bibi get back into the prime minister role in Israel. Um, I still think that most of what we do see, much like colonial set, uh, uh, settlerism uh, uh, or settler colonialism, whatever the technical term would be. Apologies for my uh, lack of linguiz, uh, linguiz, uh, linguiz. You're just a hot mess. Yeah, I know. I'm just all over the place right now. <laughs> Uh, but the motivation for the majority of these individuals is always money and power. Whatever yep. industry they could get their hands on it in, I believe it isn't about what you what religion you subscribe to. It isn't about whether you believe the Jews are the chosen people, blah, blah, blah. It's seizing on an opportunity that is going to make you very wealthy and very powerful. I believe that that is Debbie's motivation more than anything else, as it is for a lot of other people in politics. She happens to be one of the most notorious. Do you see it in the same light, both of you? Absolutely. I mean, I see what we call Zionist organizations with a powerful machinery. I see it on college campuses a lot and universities where the presence of these organizations inside and out has had a terrible impact on trying to, you know, or at least attempt to silence faculty members and students and organizations and programs that support justice for Palestine. It's vicious because it's unrelenting. They have tremendous amount of money, just as they do to, fun you know, funnel resources to campaigns, local campaigns, as well as state and national campaigns. And this, it's a political machine. And I think that's how we should see it. It's a political machine and it happens to be very powerful. And people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz don't want to be, they don't want to lose that cash cow. They don't want to lose that source of funding because they don't have an alternative one they haven't built another base. 
Yeah, that's what I say. If she didn't take, well, the truth is we always say that if she didn't take corporate money, she wouldn't have any money. It's not like she's going to get a bunch of small dollar donors that go, oh, hey, I want to go give my hard earned dollar to Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No one's doing that. But Rosalind, how much of that, I mean, granted, the demographics in our congressional district actually did change in a very unique way in this previous uh, redistricting cycle. We lost a whole chunk of Jews. We lost Aventura. She lost Aventura from her district. Which is a big, that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, She's going to take a hit on that. But there's still a significant Jewish population in the towns of Plantation, in the towns of Cooper City, in the town of yeah. Weston. Uh, um, yeah. And the thing that's unique about these three particular communities is not just that they are Jewish, they are in many cases fairly affluent Jewish. And, and I do think that there is something to be said for catering to a very specific crowd that live comfortable lives and they can focus on these particular issues that really have no bearing on their day-to-day lives, if we're being honest, but it is what you would call in many ways the um, the suburban liberals' pet it's project. It's a privileged position. It's a pet project that they get involved in. And, and I think one thing that has worked, especially because the demographic in this particular part of the country tends to skew older, is the fear tactics tend to work very effectively. Maybe yes, not as the older people. Yeah, maybe not as much as they used to, but it's still very powerful, yeah. even though the younger generations are having no part of this. Yeah. Well, I would, I'm a political theorist, and I think it's really important not to discount, although, I mean, I'm an old Marxist, so I definitely believe in class politics, sure. but I think it's important not to discount the power of ideology and culture. And I think part of what happens here is that there's a a tribalism, and it's not related to being Jewish, but a tribalism around feeling comfortable and feeling that this is your home and your base and your people who are going to support you. And you've always been there with them and they've always been there with you. And there's a fear of being cast out. There's a fear of being ostracized. And it takes a lot of courage to turn against those constituencies that have always been there in your background. So I, I think it's complicated. I really, I think it's complicated. And we have to look at those psychological and cultural dimensions of it because they're part of what is the politics yeah. besides the money. And the money is crucial, but these other things are too. Um to be called a self-hating Jew, to be called a Jewish anti-Semite, to be called an anti-Semite in this country is just, you know, it's like the worst thing. And we, our job is to teach people that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are not the same and to show the difference and the distinction between them. Zionism is adherence and obeisance to a particular state and a particular form of ethno-nationalism. It's different from religion and Jewishness and adherence to a set of ethics and beliefs and traditions. And it's so hard to get people to understand that. Um, The Zionists did a very good job. Yeah. They really did. You know, one thing I think that might might start to change the narrative, and I hate to say it because it's tragically so, is that we're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism 
in North America and around the world. And it's almost, almost exclusively, you know, white, white nationalist anti-Semitism, you know, of that variety. Um, and, you know, I, I, we're only going to see more of it. I hate to say it. I shudder to think of another synagogue being shut up the way Tree of Life was. But these are the times in which we live. And it's going to be harder and harder to keep blaming this on Palestinians. You know, um, I think the rise of white supremacy is becoming very, very alarming to even mainstream liberal folk. And I think it may it may help change the narrative that that the this using Palestinians as and, and Israel Palestine in general as a wedge issue to to use those fear tactics, I think may be less and less effective in the in the near future. I also want to think I also think in the inverse, this idea that somehow the existence of the state of Israel is a safe makes Jews safer <laughs> around the world. Yeah. It's, it's really like what we're saying is it's like the, the facts do not bear that, right? Like we we see that it's completely different. The fact that there is this huge increase in anti-Semitism and yet Israel has like the strongest, def- like it is as safe and secure as any country could ever possibly be, thanks to us. And yet we still see all this anti-Semitism. So clearly there's not really a link between the existence of a Jewish ethnostate and safety around the world for Jews. But yeah, I love it when they, they use the trope, uh, you know, Israel is at a rough neighborhood. Let's, let's unpack that. So it yeah. has a treaty with Jordan, with Egypt, yeah, with UAE, with Qatar, you know, with you know, almost, almost every Arab state at this point. Uh, probably Saudi Arabia is gonna be in, in the near, not so distant future. So just the notion that it's somehow this tiny little beleaguered state that's surrounded by enemies is, is becoming... <laughs> even even though it has a huge nuclear arsenal. And it's but, yeah, yeah. Let's point out also the tremendous contradiction, the hypocrisy of wanting it both ways. On the one hand, especially for Jews in the United States, to feel, oh, it's this haven of safety. If anything happens to us here, we can go there. And right. on the other hand, the whole basis of the Israeli security state and of the appeal for billions of dollars from the United States is fear and insecurity and and the notion that they are under threat all the time, not from their neighbors, but from inside, from the so-called terrorists, since every single Palestinian, including infants and the dead, are considered terrorists. So, you know, they have either they're under threat or they're safe. But which is it? So well, I think that it. It's, it's safe to say that whatever they are is at the pleasure of the United States. So yeah. Israel exists at our pleasure, which that to me translates to let's say we were to say, OK, we're not supporting this anymore. We're not going to support this unless you actually have a state, a nation that is democratic. Right. Well, if we did that, would we have to start doing that with all of the people we like? Because Saudi Arabia, I mean, we, we have a lot of friends. You mean we would end the war in Yemen? Well, <laughs> we we I mean, that. that's a whole other can of arms. But like we we can't address this because there's just that's that's a rabbit hole of dictators and people that we support and prop up. For sure. A good point, Jen. But yeah. it's also they can't because. <laughs> who who are the who is the they? You know, who's the they? Us. The I mean, the where are the they? 
the, we could decide. Know, we could Biden decide that. Right. But we have to have some support in Congress. And right now oh. we have a handful of, you know, of progressives in Congress who are willing to step up. But it's not a critical mass yet. So, are you talking about the same people that sent Biden a letter saying, OK, we're going to approve your b- budget for Ukraine. But could we maybe possibly just consider the idea of diplomacy first, please? Please, we'll still give you the money. And then they had to retract that letter because it was just too stern. Is that are these the progressives of which we're speaking? <laughs> well, no, I mean, there were there were letters actually to, to Biden and Blinken around Shirin Abu Ahmed, around yeah. around funding for Israel. It's not, you know, it's still a small minority. Yeah. But they've been speaking a little bit. And now with this government, which is just out and out, unapologetically, blatantly racist and in favor of ethnic cleansing and expulsion of Palestinians. I mean, the, the new, you know, cronies of Netanyahu are, are ready to, before it was annexation, they were annexing a lot of the West Bank um, and pushing for that, but it's much more now. It's, you know, um, oh, God, what's his, what's the name of the, the Jewish religion party guy and the... Ben Gavir? Ben Gavir and, and the other one, too. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. No, it's ridiculous. I just wrote a letter about this. Rabbi, did you um, want to jump in and say something on that we were talking about? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and we talked a little bit about this before. I mean, I think it's going to be harder and harder to defend, but I think that it's a really daunting prospect to to detach this relationship because Israel is still an enormously important strategic asset to the United States in that region. And, you know, that's why it's going to take a popular movement to not let go of this. Um, that, that to make a difference. And we know that historically that has, that has worked, but, you know, I just worry that we don't really have time on our side. You know, I think things are about to get really, really bad. Yes, in, they in, are bad. In Palestine. Um, and, you know, I sometimes say we have history on our side. I just not sure we have time on our side. And that's, you know, that's, that's. No, I think we're heading for a, a, for some type of a collision course at this point. I mean, it's just kind of obvious, but like history has always shown, um, you know, everything is always interconnected to the plight of the working class, uh, whether in the States or around the world. And right now the working class is being completely decimated um, every which way you turn and something's going to give because people are just not going to take it uh, forever. I mean, the Russian revolution was a century ago. It's not to say that something like that at that significance couldn't happen again. We're seeing the protests in China. We're seeing what's Iran. going on. Iran, absolutely. Um, we're seeing what's going on in Yemen. We're seeing what's going on here in the States. Now, people are getting tired of this. And the truth is, very often, the change only comes when the corruption is just right in your face. And right now, the corruption is right in everybody's face. They can see it clear as day and they don't like it. 
And after what the president just did, claiming he was a labor president and what he did to the, what he did to the railroad, railroad workers, workers. Unbelievable. What he just did regarding, you know, uh, Senator Sanders trying to bring a resolution to the floor again to end the war in Yemen, which did pass in 2018 or 2019 and Trump vetoed it. But because, you know, there's the neoliberal establishment that must be protected. We don't want to put President Biden in the same position to basically prove that it doesn't matter which major parties in power right. when it comes to foreign policy. And I always say, it's not President Biden, it's President Blinken. I believe Anthony Blinken is the gentleman <laughs> who, who basically calls the shots. And so enough people are, and, and the worst part about it, of course, when it comes to anti-Semitism, is that working people who are desperate will often look for a scapegoat. They will look for something that they can latch onto. But what most people don't realize is that it is a, a collective group of extremely powerful elites that basically run the show and the proxy of what Israel represents to their power is extremely important to their cause. And that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. But I also believe that we are coming to a breaking point. Is it going to get violent? Yeah, oh, pro probably. It, well, yeah. it already is violent. And I think it's going to get more violent. And unfortunately, it's probably what needs to happen. Historically, when has there ever really been a real revolution that where there was no violence? I don't know that that happens. It's I been agree. A long it's been a long time coming since you were a young lady. You know, I've always said that this country has been heading down this very dangerous slope since Jack's assassination in Dallas. It's just been, you know, we haven't fully recognized that we're, we're kind of coming to that point because the United States post-World War II went through a two-decade period where things, for the most part, were heading in the right direction. Between FDR and JFK, they worked. And then once he was assassinated, it's basically going down this very dangerous slope. And now the question becomes, what is it going to look like once we hit bottom? I don't know if we're close to it or not, but I know and I can feel that things are not right. And I'm, and I'm getting that sense from everyday people that I talk to that are not even interested in politics, but they sense that something's really wrong. And that's a, a twice a impeached president is running again. And could win again. And could win again. I'd say something is clearly wrong. Well, and let's say the we is not just we in the United States, but it's really transnational. Yeah. And the more we ally with in solidarity and build coalitions with others who are feeling this and who are wanting real change, the more likely it is to happen. Yeah. Amen. That's what I try to do. I try to that's connect as many. Yeah, that's what I kind of try to do is connect as many pieces of a web as possible is what it feels like. It's like this web and the more interconnections, the stronger it is. And I just think that's the only way we have any chance of kind of getting anywhere. Great. Because power is going to concede nothing. Good well, for I you, Jen. And if you run again, we'll support you. Well, I'm thank you. I, I'm so pleased with you. Are you from, do you know Donna Neville? Of course. Sure. Okay, so Donna's, I mean, I'm not going to say a friend, friendly, just knowing her from being at events in South Florida, and she mm -hmm. was one of our earliest guests on, on our show. Oh, um, yeah. And so I'm very, I, but I never realized how big the organization was, Jewish Voice for Peace. Like, I knew of it just because it was her, I thought it was her thing. And then I, <laughs> right, it was just her. She's just all by herself. No. Well, she does loom large. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but, you know, and down here, I actually met her at a protest 
against ICE because we have like a lot of immigration detention right. centers. And so I actually met her not regarding uh, Israel-Palestinian issue, like just completely unrelated to that. But, but um, that's I, typical of JVP politics. We're yeah. in lots of things. Yeah, I like it very much. And I have since that meeting have like brought in like five new people. Fantastic. Well, yeah. Well, um, my phone battery is about to die. I'm Thank you so much. And I'm sorry. That you said that. Anybody, guys, if you check out a land with the people and check out Rabbi Rosen's wrestling, wrestling in the daylight. In and wrestling. guys, yeah, it's great. It. And they're not all that different, just so you know. It's really no. people coming to grips and coming to terms with this truth about something that really, like you said, Rosalind, it's on, it's in our name. Like this is something that was our birthright, right? Like this is supposed to be, and, and we need to speak up about it. And I'm very thankful to have met both of you on this path. And I hope we see each other again. I'll, I'll definitely see you at the next JVP mass meeting. Let's yeah. Rosalind Pachetsky, Rabbi (laughs) Brant Rosen. Thank you so much. Have a happy Hanukkah and happy holidays. Thank you so much. This was great. Bye. Bye, guys. Very pleased. So that, look, you know what? We're getting there with our tech issues. But guys, I'm not kidding you. These books are great. And they also provide, what the, the, the other thing that's also very hard, especially for Jewish people that are standing in solidarity with Palestinians, is the barrage of particular talking points that you get from people that are kind of propagandized from the Zionist movement. And these books have provided a lot of good responses that are very reasonable, very rational based on facts. And, you know, just really put it in perspective in terms of warding off those talking points that you get from people like the people that say, well, but they're building tunnels under the ground. And I, you know, my other response used to be, well, yeah, they're born in captivity. How would you expect them to act? Um, But no, I'm serious. These books give some really good counter arguments for the typical tropes that we get. So I, I was very happy to, and she's, you know, she also is, by the way, she said she's a Marxist and she is a professor. And this is somebody who isn't, it's not just a matter of, this is a, an older Jewish woman that came to terms with her Zionist upbringing. No, but that's also she's the whole very thing. educated. Yeah, it's on also this. the whole like Jewish geography thing, which I think, uh, you know, if you, depending on what does happen in 24, uh, well, you yeah, saw their faces when like you said that. Debbie Wasser-Mitchell. Oh, well, you they saw know. her face. Well, that's because, she, you know, again, Debbie she, has been able to be, Debbie's been very protected for a very long time. And breaking through that armor is not easy. But once you start breaking through the chinks in the armor, it's, you know, her 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 male, her, her, her protection, it's probably not that strong. But when you have used fear and money for a long time, yeah. it allows you to get away with quite Well, I am doing as much as I can to align myself as best as I can with the people that are the anti-APAC people, because ultimately that's what this is going to come down to. When, when we're sitting here talking about the money and the influence in politics, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about APAC and DMFI. That's it. But if you're going to help us get there, we would be so inclined to go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You can help us start that journey, potentially 
to Jen running again, no guarantees. But hey, even if she doesn't, there are a lot of great causes down here that we can help with that you guys can be a part of. Absolutely. And if you are feeling a little bit more generous and would like to be a $10 a month $10 a month gets you. And it's the holiday season. So who wouldn't want these bad boys? The Lulu sticker and the Mansion Parliamentarian. Now, by the way, Mansion Parliamentarian is my pick for 24. That's who I'm voting for. I'm sticking to it. Um, in all seriousness, I do figure I might as well vote for the most powerful people in the party. Yeah. Why would the party choose somebody that's less powerful than the most powerful people in the party? That clean doesn't coal. make sense. Clean coal. We'll definitely have clean coal. But if you're really feeling generous. Very generous. And you do a- $25, you get the, I'm not letting you say it because it's ridiculous. You guys, it's a very nice baseball jersey. It says, here comes the sun. It has our generational change logo on the back. Um, and it all goes to helping us. But it's also a tri-blend and it's comfortable. He can't help Come himself. Come on! Do you even know what a tri-blend means? Do you even know what it means? It sounds great. But do you even know what that means? Think it through. I think it's like three different. Uh, okay, you got the you got the try. You got the try. So that's good. You got the Latin root. Right, so I'm going to say that it's a combination of cotton, polyester, and spandex. Something like that. Whatever. Okay. See, three. I'm not that dumb. I'm I didn't blonde. say you I were dumb. dumb. I just wanted to give you something they're saying. It's this tribal, but it is actually soft. And one of the things for people, if you if you are in a Florida campaigning situation, when we're canvassing, especially for an August primary, to say it's hot is it's an understatement that you just can't even comprehend. It's like you're, and, and the humidity, it's, you're canvassing in a steam room. It would be like you're you're in a steam room and you're canvassing, you except you're all wearing clothes. Have you checked the Patreon? Not in a day or so. Do okay. I need to? Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm not, we'll person. deal with that. We'll deal with that next time. Okay. But you think enough. we have a new person? Uh, what do we have? Uh, other than in chat, how can we join if you are not on Patreon? Well, if you would like to contribute to our show, one of the things that you can do is go to uh, uh, Cash App. You can't. So, well, you don't have to, you know, like if you're not on Patreon, Patreon's not something to be on. Anybody can go to Patreon and just patronize any show. Like you don't have to be a subscriber. It's not like you're, so you don't pay to be on Patreon. You could just come on and Jen, say, I want to give them. Can you show the two books again for Arthur Handy? Welcome, Arthur. Hello. These are great books. Guys, we had both of these authors on. This one is called Wrestling in the Daylight. It's by Rabbi Brant Rosen. And it's a rabbi's path to Palestinian solidarity. I would like to say in my life, he's definitely one of the coolest rabbis I've ever met. And the other one is a land with a people. And for and for anybody who doesn't know, one of the things that we're taught as young, budding, um, hopeful Zionists growing up, <laughs> one of the things we're taught is that Israel was a land with no without a people for a people without a land. And that's very frustrating because there were people there. Yes. And not just were there people there. And even according to um, if you guys go back and look on our first um, Deconstructing Zionism panel discussion, Professor Doug Rossenow explained very well that it's not a land without people. It's a land without a people. And by a people, what it means is, yeah, there were some people there, but they weren't cohesive enough to form an actual nation. So they didn't qualify as an as a as a group of people. And therefore, we were entitled to take over their land. It's really the same thing that we did to the native people here. It's really what happens to indigenous people on every continent. Palestine was no different. It's no different. It's the same thing, except the difference is, is that they are still currently living in an apartheid state. It would honestly, it would be, 
I'm trying to think like, I mean, yeah, we can always think of South Africa as a reference, but I, I'd like to think like there would be a better reference here. Well, it's hard because we kind of are too in a lot of ways in apartheid state. So it's kind of hard. We're a lot Perhaps. less, uh, we're a lot less blatant about it. But if anybody ever reads books like medical apartheid or the whiteness of wealth, I got to tell you, <laughs> we're pretty, we're pretty uh, apartheidy. but we're, we're apartheid in a sense that for them, it's blatant. Like there literally are rights that are given to Jewish Israelis versus um, Palestinian Israelis. So are you, Kay. Can't, can't say enough. You really are an amazing supporter of our program. Um, we wish we had a bigger audience. Hey, and if like you have any, by the way, if you have any recommendations or suggestions of anyone you think would be great, um, Double K, for us to talk to regarding labor or any, any like yes. union people that you think would be, you know, a good guest, by all means, tell us. Well, we will have one of the best labor people in her wonderful state of Wisconsin. Our friend of the show, Harvey K, will be coming back for the Festivus. Oh, yes. So, guys, we are having, put it up. We are having our Festivus coming up next Friday. So a week from Friday, we will be having our Festivus. We're putting three panels together. We're going to be going from six to nine. Um, I I'm like kind of don't like telling people who's coming because things get moved around and changed or people cancel and whatever. Um, so I don't want to say that, but it will be entertaining. I am making sure that all of our guests come prepared with their grievances for the airing of grievances. Uh, Peter didn't like the idea of each panel being a different part of the Festivus. Like I had this idea that we would do airing of grievances, feats of strength, and then declaring a Festivus miracles, but he didn't like that. So instead, everybody's going to get to air their grievances. And I think at every panel, there should be some sort of feat of strength and a declaration of a Festivus miracle. And if you're lucky, I might make the vegetarian meatloaf. Well, we're counting on the vegan loaf. so. So we'll see what happens, guys. But we will be celebrating Festivus. Uh, uh, next Friday, which actually is Festivus, is December 23rd. Yes, and I think keeping with that tradition, there isn't many, but that's definitely one worth keeping. I got a lot of problems with you, people! Let me tell you, if there's ever anything I want to be known for, it's that we have an annual Festivus celebration. Well, Okay, now what would be awesome would be to get, like, Jerry Seinfeld to come on our Festivus Why do you guys feel the need to continue this Festivus? <laughs> actually, I'd go for holiday. any even grade B Ancillary, oh, no, I would ancillary have, no, character. I'd go I, for like Jay Peterman or somebody like that. No, 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 if, well, no if I could pick one person, I would pick Jason Alexander. Okay. Like, that's who I would. I mean, God, please. If you really wanted to pick this. the person, probably best be like Larry David. We would have a much better shot at getting Jason Alexander than we would at getting Larry David. So I don't, we have no shot of getting any of these people, by I the way. I wouldn't say that. No, I, I you think, think Jay, so. I think Jason might consider it. I, how do you know that? 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. So, but I do think that would be really great. Okay. Like in my dream universe, it would be Jerry Stiller, but he's dead. So that can't happen. But he's passed on. He is passed on. No, dead. I'm a journalist. We say okay. dead. It's one of the th- first things you learn in journalism 101. I don't know if they still teach it the same, but I remember it. Day one, journalism Took the words 101. Out of bag left his mouth. Yes, it is too bad. Because- I know. And 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 so I almost feel like it's I feel like I think about him when when we talk about Festivus. I always think about Jerry Stiller and that not just that character, but he was just great all around. He was. He was probably the best ancillary character on the show. I would. But all and and they're they're all great. I mean, come on. Well, between him and Wayne Wayne Knight, I mean, obviously they were Newman. Hello, Newman. Newman. (laughs) Hello, Jerry. 
<laughs> you know the numbers on the you know the numbers no on my the, newman my favorite newman is him driving down the street singing once twice three times a lady and the whole truck catches on fire because of the golf Kramer, Kramer, you got to get in here right now yeah but, but it was because the guy was yeah. throwing the golf clubs yes. from jerry's car jfk's golf clubs God. Brad Garrett. Brad Garrett was great with yeah. the sob. Yeah, he couldn't couldn't <laughs> take the fact that Jerry was so uncertain. So guys, we have some we have some um, great stuff, but um, yeah, if you're following the the deconstructing Zionism series, I'm very much appreciated. I'm going to keep working on bringing on new people, different organizations. Um, I want to bring on the lady that Rachel with Zach wrote. And we're going to have to do it during the day because they actually are in Israel. Next Monday, we will be having Rachel Lears, who is the director of uh, To the End, which is the new documentary about the Green New Deal and the urgency that it requires at this point. This was the woman who did Knocking Down down the House. house. So AOC is featured prominently. We have got a private screening. So we got a clip. Uh, We're able to watch the movie. Exciting. And then, of course, our main super special guest, Chelsea Chelsea Manning, Manning. will be on our show Monday night. At, uh, and the show will begin at 8 30 p.m. sharp. And so guys, there. yeah, and but so is she scheduled to come on at, nine? at nine? Okay. Right. So, guys, seriously, this is a very rare opportunity. It really is. I don't know how many people follow this, but I have never in my life been in a situation where I watched a live stream with Chelsea Manning wherein I'd be able to ask questions. So I'm just saying, like, this is a very cool thing. This is to me, like, there is no braver person than I've seen. Like, this is. She's just this badass. This is a person literally She's who's been through badass. No question about it. And and had every opportunity to to cave and and give them what they wanted, even though it wasn't true. And she just just she is my hero. Like she is definitely a hero. Like big time. And then of course Festivus will be on Friday the twenty third. What we will do the week leading up to New Year's, well, maybe we'll do one show, two shows. We'll figure it out. You know, a lot of people will be traveling. But my friend from my summer that spent the summer with me is coming to town on Saturday. Very cool. She watches sometimes, but she doesn't comment. She just watches. Well, hey, any viewership we can get is always appreciated. So last thing before we go, obviously, a lot of you guys know uh, that the World Cup um, final is coming up uh, very shortly. Um, Probably the most noteworthy writer of uh, World Cup soccer is Grant Wall. He unfortunately died of a coronary aneurysm, um, so it has been told. But I think it is very important not to get too conspiratorial, but there was the final substack that he wrote just before he died. And I'm going to read it now. Why am I going to read it? Wait, are you going to, like, is this a long thing? I don't think it's that long. Let's see. I hate being read to. And you, I mean, like this in this situation, it's like if I can chill out in my bed with my audible, I'm good. This is it. Okay. So- Uh, One thing that a lot of people don't realize is that Mr. Wall uh, was somebody who was hypercritical of the migrant worker exploitation that it took to build the World Cup soccer complex, if you will, in Qatar, which is one of the most, uh, we'll say, barbaric regimes, uh, countries in the whole world, along with United Arab Emirates and, of course, Saudi Arabia. It's where all the money is. Yeah, it's where all the oil money is. So, you know, uh, I, I- Cause I also would point out that I just found out earlier today that somebody else died that I very much liked and appreciated and thought was extremely gifted. And that was Steve, Stephen Twitch boss. I don't know if you know who he is. Twitch from, 
well, he was from So You Think You Can Dance, who's an amazing dancer. And and then he was Ellen's DJ on her show, basically, for the duration of her show. And he committed suicide. Yes. And he was 40. And it makes me really, really sad. And it's a huge loss to the dance industry in this country as far as like, he was just, he was awesome. All right, well, then I guess I'm not going to do my story. No, please read your story. Okay. So the World Cup Daily, which was written on December 8th, I believe two days prior to uh, Mr. Wall, unfortunately, passing away. Uh, World Cup Daily number 25. They just don't care. Qatari World Cup organizers don't even hide their apathy over migrant worker deaths including the most recent one. Yeah, we're not even talking about worker abuse. We're talking about abuse so bad that people die. So I'd say that's pretty significant. And this is Mr. Nasser Al-Qatar, who is the Qatar World Cup chief executive. Yeah, he looks like a real charmer, let me tell you. So Qatar, they just don't care. The Supreme Committee in charge of Qatar's World Cup doesn't care that a Filipino migrant, they're bringing in people from the Philippines. Well, of course, what else are they gonna do? Filipino migrant worker died at Saudi Arabia's training resort during the group stage. He They're suffered, killing all the Yemeni. He suffered a fatal blow to the head during a fall in a forklift accident. Information that was kept under wraps until being broken by the athletics, Adam Crifton. Uh, you know, of course, these types of accidents only happen in extremely unsafe work conditions. And why would the work conditions be unsafe? I don't understand what any of this has to do with soccer. Well, they were building, uh, they, they have to build these complexes just specifically for the World Cup. Oh, so this is sort of like when places bid on the Olympics and they have to put together a whole ridiculous- You're learning now! I just don't care that much about the sports games. We know the Qatari Supreme Committee doesn't care because its CEO, Nasser al Qatar told you all you needed to hear in an interview with the BBC that was breathtaking, breathtaking. in its crassness. That's what I said. That baby was breathtaking. Who says breathtaking? <laughs> We're in the middle of a World Cup and we have a successful World Cup. And this is something you want to talk about right now? Talk about callous. Al Qatar said when asked about the worker's death. I mean, death is a natural part of life. Whether it's at work, whether it's in your sleep, of course a worker died. Our condolences go to his family. However, it's strange that this is something you wanted to focus on as your first question. Ah! He actually said that. Well, but I'll cut That's didn't some serious stop sensitivity right there. I really think. For the majority of people who look at these types of stories and get conspiratorial about what actually does happen when somebody dies conspicuously, is it possible that Grant Wall just died of natural causes? He had been complaining about his health, that he had been overworked for the past several weeks, and then all of a sudden dies of an aneurysm? I would say that it's very possible. What does that have to do with the Filipino? Why are you commenting like that? Because I'm looking at, you're sitting there talking about the story about a Filipino migrant worker and that he fell to his death. And now we're talking about somebody else. And I'm not really understanding the context of any of this. So Qatar I, I is hosting not, the World Cup. I understand Qatar that. Qatar is hosting the World Cup and they have hired slave labor to build that. their complexes. And slave labor has been dying 
as a result of this. No, no, no but and the person you're referencing, Wall, I don't understand who that is in relation to this. He's the, he is the soccer journalist who the just journalist. died. Okay, that's what I'm just trying to understand because you're going back and forth between No, people. I it's think like, I've been very clear. And if you ask anybody in the audience, they would say the same like it's thing. It's like following a story. With well, Graham. you don't care because you don't, you don't like sports. Something, I, yeah, but I, mean, I don't want like people to get dead. No, and I, well, you like, well, at least you like football. But that, I do like, I like football and I like basketball. But the World Cup is a significant story right now because they decided to host this this grand spectacle for one hap- which happens every four years. It's the most watched international sporting event in the world, even more than the Olympics. People tune in for this. All right, guys, I hear you. I hear you. I'm and sort so, of in as and a result, no, you because you don't care, but that's okay. I do. I care deeply. Not a, not in the least. <laughs> And so what makes this story so significant is the fact that this gentleman who had been writing about soccer for so long decided to not write a neoliberal talking point about how wonderful the World Cup is and how this is bringing money to the to the local community and the working people are going to benefit so from So he this. called them out. He called out the absolute barbaric behavior of the Qatari regime. And you do not do that. And then he got dead. And then he got dead. Now, you can say what you want about how he just coincidentally happened to die within less than 48 hours of releasing that article. They want to focus on the fact that he walked around town with a with, with a with a rainbow flag on. Yeah, that's going to piss off a lot of people, but they're not going to kill somebody over that. I don't they, know. In that in, in over there. I don't know that to be true. That's not something that's going to affect their bottom line. But calling out the fact that you employ slave labor and you're actually killing people in the process because you simply are so barbaric in your labor methods, that's not going to sit well at all. I'm going to explain the real reason I have a problem like dealing with soccer. Because like here, Patty P, soccer is huge. I know soccer is huge. And when you guys say soccer, it's all great. But the thing is, is that the rest of the world calls it football. And I feel like in order for me to be an authentic fan of soccer, I would have to call it football. And I can't do that because I follow football. It's not a it's not a question of caring about soccer. It's about caring about working migrants of around the well, world. Well, that's that are what I said. I was trying like to understand animals. This I do have a that problem. You can with. just slaughter at any time. And the callous reaction to this gentleman, I wouldn't even call him a gentleman because he's not worthy of that statement, but the head of the World Cup Committee in Qatar is clearly somebody who doesn't value human life. He values money and power like so many other Bet people. Bet you anything he has a concubine. Whatever he has. Bet you anything he has like actually a harem of concubines. Man, can't you just half-heartedly take what I'm trying to do seriously? I am trying? taking it seriously. This is not somebody who cares about human rights, but it doesn't mean we can't be remotely entertaining while we're talking I about it. I still think it's a very important topic because, again, it relates to the fact that this gentleman may have paid for it with his life, that he was willing to call out the absolute horrific treatment of labor that exists all over the world. And this is no exception. But this is extremely bad because people were saying forever, do not let Qatar get the World Cup. Don't let them get it. But people want their stupid money and their stupid power, and they're willing to sacrifice their morals and values in order to get it. Look at what Phil Mickelson did. Look at what's going on with the Saudi Arabia golf. uh, Is that the live thing? Yes. See? I pay attention. I understand. I read a whole thing about that because it has to do with Greg Norman. I was reading this whole thing with Greg Norman and they're basically like defending it and saying why nobody should be upset that they're basically in bed with the Saudis. I don't know. The whole thing reeks of elitist filth to me. It is elitist filth. So I don't really like to me again, I don't care what language my oligarchs speak or what country they're from. 
it matters not to me. They're still treating the peasants horribly. So it doesn't matter what country they're in. That's they're, Yeah, well, they're killing them. And this journalist decided to do real journalism and say, yeah, they're killing them. And it's a tragedy that it's happening. And then the next thing you know, he's dead. I don't know what to make of it. I know everyone's going to say, oh, it's just a conspiracy. He died of natural causes. Maybe. I think they'd probably Jamal khashoggi him. Maybe not. But you better damn believe that much like President Trump didn't say anything about Khashoggi, President Biden is not going to say anything about Grant Wall. Not happening. The second you realize who funds this country and funds the world... Why isn't American football played with people? Because American football isn't really football. It's really more like rugby with helmets and shoulder pads. It's, it's Ameri- kind of- It's American it's, rugby. It's, it's wussy really rugby. No, I don't, why do you say that? Because they have helmets and shoulder pads. And yeah. in rugby, they just go bare bones, man. That to me is more badass. I'm sorry, but it is. It's like, there's a difference between like the the- like street fighters and stuff. And when you have like, and you're sparring with like gloves and, and helmets. Correct, and Patty. It is it, the world cup. That is not where people wanted it, but they got it there anyway, because the money is just so. Well, but isn't that really this is, this, it's no different than when we're dealing with things with the Olympics in terms of place it, like arguing over who gets to have it based on some moral high ground as if we have one to stand on. Yeah. That's what's fascinating to me. Like, where do we get off having some sort of moral high ground about anything having to do with human rights whatsoever? I, I, I just don't understand. Oh, this is something I wanted to talk about. So did you ever research into what Ron DeSantis's military history is? Uh, apparently he was involved with uh, the torture program in, at Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay. Bay. Now that uh-huh. will come out when he runs for president. Well, that's already out. It's not yeah. a secret. Um, and no, he did not participate in torture. He was an attorney there, basically there to justify said uh, actions. Mm. So, you know, that to me is not is not a good thing. But my point is, is that civil rights and human rights abuses uh, run rife in this country, like been- all over the place. So we have no position. That's why. What does it matter what Qatar does? We don't treat our own people right. No, we don't. Flint doesn't have clean water. So like. For us to sit there and be like, somehow we're just so on some moral high horse that we shouldn't allow places like third world Qatar and their, you know, barbaric ways to host a World Cup. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, Do their people have clean water? Their people might have clean water. Maybe to them we're barbarians. I don't know, but we're not the good guys. Are we the baddies? Well, I think it's not a matter of good or bad. It's a matter of just imperial colonialist. That's that's what it is. It's not good or bad. It just is. Um, from the perspective of the colonized, I'd say it's quite bad. And from the perspective of the victor, I'd say it's going quite marvelously. And this is just the this is the problem over and over and over again. And by the way, the more people I meet that I'm with on so many issues, I don't think it's a coincidence that an inordinate amount of them seem to be Marxists. We're definitely needing a hard shift to the left. We are definitely needing a hard shift with labor more than anything else. And that's what I, that's what I'm talking about when I think about, because that's really, when we're talking about Marxism, that's what the proletariat is. It's labor. It's not communism. That's that, that came after the fact 
it's Marxist Leninism. It's really the idea of power to the people, power to the working class, power to the proletariat over its owner class. That's what it is. It, it wasn't a geopolitical thing. It was a labor thing. Um, so when I say like, but it is interesting, the amount of people that I'm aligned with when they're and they're Marxist and I don't ist myself. I'm not an ist, but there are definitely very many Marxist principles that I do agree with. And I do support. Obviously, I support labor and I support that the people should be able to be properly compensated for the means of, you know, for the of their production. Yeah. What a noble concept. Well, I mean, there's just a lot of things about it. And, and really what Marx did was he analyzed capitalism and its flaws and pointed out some serious flaws. Well, that's why anybody who's regarded as anything close to a Marxist is immediately discredited, dismissed. That's right. what happens. And really all it is is adhering to an economic philosophy. It's not a governance. It's an economic philosophy that recognizes the flaws of capitalism when it's put in conjunction with human nature and just recognizes that an inherently pure capitalist system can't exist without the oppression of the majority of people. That's all it's saying, right? We're not saying it's not a governance. It's an economic theory. Marx was an economic theorist, a philosopher. So it's like when you say Marx and people are like, oh, you're a communist. Well, no, that's a that's a political party. Actually, that's a completely different thing. So um, and I just feel like it's important. I think words matter. And I think that it's important for people to understand the distinctions. If you're going to call me a socialist or a communist, you should at least be accurate in what you're going to be calling. Well, me. most people are not accurate in most of the things that they say politically. But that, unfortunately, is a lesson learned. And that is why I tend to be more critical of liberals and conservatives. I accept the fact that a lot of conservatives, especially rural conservatives, never had the type of proper education that would teach them a lot of these things. But look, look where I grew up and I wasn't taught properly either. Well, that's more deliberate than anything else. There's well, I think a lot of this is deliberate. Oh, absolutely. Lack of education is, is all very deliberate. Well, that, well, again, the, the part of the reason why so many people don't understand why conservatives gravitate towards carnival barkers in general is because that is essentially what they were raised in. They were raised in the snake oil world that is politics and religion. Whereas liberals always fancy themselves as being the smartest people in the room. And in reality, they're often the least smartest person in the room because they not they may have a lot of book smarts, but they have no street smarts. They have no way of reading people. They have no way of identifying issues. And at the end of the day, it's a class war. That's what this is. Now I have to think about it. I don't think I qualify as a socialist. But here's the thing. If I were to say that I was a socialist, I would say I was an economic socialist. I'm, not starting, a to feel like a, I'm socialist. starting to feel like a preacher now, thanks to Double Woo! We're going to start passing like a jar around. Oh, so this was one thing I wanted to talk about. So, and, and oh, I'm getting tired. just the term PEP. Okay, guys, I, we have a new term. It's called a PEP. And a PEP is somebody who's progressive except Palestine. Mm. And there actually was another book I had read by Mark Lamont Hill called Except for Palestine. And that's the exact premise. It's like there's so many people that are liberal and progressive except for Palestine. Um, and so they're peps. Pretty sort nice. of like, yeah, they're peps. Well, we hope you enjoyed it. Remember Monday, Chelsea Manning and Rachel Lears. And of course, Friday is the Festivus for the rest of us. So we hope you'll tune in. Make sure you like and I subscribe. I almost feel like we should have some sort of giveaway or something for Festivus. I feel like we should have some sort of contest or prize to try to get to something. try to get the viewership up. I think that, but also, yeah, like have a giveaway. Like maybe we give a away. gift. A gift. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll come up with like a, I don't know, like a gift card or maybe something. the person who comes up with the best Festivus miracle 
who has the best Festivus miracle. I don't know. We'll have to come up with some sort okay, of Okay, so we're going to do some, t- we're going to give away some type of a gift on Festivus. So you better all tune in because you have to be watching the live stream in order to get it. Yeah. So we'll be picking that person. <laughs> uh, we'll be we'll checking your ideas, all of that. Super chats. And it will considered. not be a Festivus poll or no. my vegan meatloaf. No, but it'll be fun. Good idea. We'll work on that. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in, guys. Smash the like button, like, subscribe, do all that wonderful stuff. Get it out there. And we'll see you Monday. Bye, all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.